0: But we made sure that Uncuffed was available for free. It's another way KALW is bringing our digital content to everyone. We can do this thanks to listener support. So help us make KALW accessible to everyone. Donate at KALW.org.
1: Hi, this is KALW board member Joe Kreitz in San Francisco, California, and you're listening to KALW San Francisco Bay Area.
0: The time is now six o'clock. That means the show is your legal rights. Welcome to your legal rights. Here is your host for the program, Jeff Hayden.
2: Good evening and welcome once again to your legal rights on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden, along with my co-host tonight, NBC legal and political analyst, Dean Johnson. American voting technology is hopelessly out of date, controlled by large businesses, and closed off from public inspection. Why are our cell phone apps more up to date than this pipeline to our democracy?
3: Dean? Good evening, everyone. You know, Jeff, the vote is the heart of our democracy. And our right to vote is under attack from many different fronts. Um, an ABC Washington uh, A- ABC Washington Post poll uh, recently conducted uh, concluded that only one in five Americans is, quote, very confident about the voting process. And the Election Integrity Pro- uh, Project ranked the U.S. as the lowest in, in-, in election integrity among our Western democracies. And as you point out, Jeff, the tech that we use to download the latest Taylor Swift album is decades ahead of the tech that we use to elect a president of the United States. Right now, 41 senators representing less than 10% of our voters can block virtually any federal legislation. Years of gerrymandering has undermined the value of many Americans' votes, that process is likely to be accelerated when the Supreme Court decides Harper versus Moore, which will give state legislatures carte blanche to select presidential elect- electors as they wish. <clears throat> and, a statute that could, and the statute that controls our election process was enacted in 1887 as the result of a compromise that produced 100 years of Jim Crow laws. Some of uh, some of the 2020 election deniers ran this year for state and local offices that control elections. Some said that they would correct election results as they thought necessary. And locally, games are being played over the power to control elections. Jeffrey?
2: So where does all this stand? What is the state of elections in California? Tonight, we look behind the curtains. Look at local, state, and federal voting issues. There's much to discuss. For starters, give us a call. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. And again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, you can call us toll-free at 866 798 8255. We even pay for your call. Again, that's 866-798-8255. But bear in mind that our attorney guests can't provide you precise legal advice. We don't have all the facts relating to a given case. Happy to pass along legal principles to assist in your decision making. And the positions taken tonight, the guidance shared, might not be those of employers or constituents or clients. But again, these folks are here to help. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. If you're outside the Bay Area, 866-798-8255. So Dean, who do we have on tap for tonight?
3: Well, Jeff, our guest tonight is Brent Turner. Mr. Turner is a graduate of Lincoln Law School in San Francisco and has a degree granted by the University of San Diego in international legal studies. Brent is a community activist whose efforts have included volunteer work for the homeless, children's health, education, and civil and civil rights. Mr. Turner was instrumental in the creation of the San Francisco County Voting System Task Force and has been a director of communications for Open Voting, Open Voting Consortium. Brent has been recognized as a groundbreaking activist for sustainability and dedicates himself to local, state and federal issues. and Mr. Turner was recently featured in the award-winning reform documentary "The Real Activist," with former CIA director Jim Wolseley and
1: and Peter Coyote.:
2: So with that, that sounds pretty intriguing. Brent, let me welcome you back to your legal rights.:
1: Thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Dean.
3: So, you know, Brent, um, as our listeners are aware, I like to start um, the show, the conversation, with a big question. And tonight, I'd like to start locally. Um, there was recently an effort to replace a San Francisco official, the elections director, a man whose name is probably not known to most of our listeners. His name is John Arntz, and he has served for 20 years, and it's rumored That, among other things, it was open source voting advocates who were behind the effort to remove it. Can you tell us the story behind the John Arnst affair and how this came to be and how it resolved itself? Uh,
1: Thank you, uh, Dean, for the question. And uh, I do have some information that I'm glad to share on that point. Um, John Arnst, as you mentioned, has been at the helm of San Francisco elections for 20 years and uh, the good news is uh, that he is a capable administrator and uh, there haven't been any ballots or ballot lids in the Bay recently that have been spotted. So to that extent, it, he, he has uh, done a, a decent job. The bad news is, is that uh, there's been a tremendous amount of negative press generated locally regarding his relationship with uh, one particular vendor and one particular vendor rep that he's been purchasing machines from for the past couple decades, and um, as far as the uh, open source community uh, advocating for his job to go up to competition, that is true. Uh, it's it's uh, our issue is not necessarily to remove people that have been at their position too long. But unfortunately, in our advocacy, we have witnessed this particular uh, clerk um, being less than forthright with the election commission, who has the ability to hire and fire his position. So when uh, they decided that it was time to open the job up for uh, competition, we supported that decision. Interestingly, the press, uh, the national press, uh, mainly Fox News and Tucker Carlson, uh, took a, the story and twisted it so that it became a story about, uh, well, the headline was uh, Director of San Francisco Elections Fired for Being White. And that headline went worldwide and caused all sorts of upheaval within the political community of San Francisco. The reality of the story is that he was not fired um, and that the only reference to equity that was made was because one of the uh, commissioners couldn't tell the real story as that was involved in a closed-door session uh, uh, regarding his performance review. So the press took what they had, that little tidbit, and repurposed it uh, for their own benefit, the press. And it did cause a firestorm of publicity, but unfortunately, the the public was misinformed. And in fact, uh, he is still at the helm. Uh, Hopefully, if they do managed to open the job up for competition. There will be an equity lens used for his replacement, but that's a separate matter.
2: He has friends in high places, does he not?
1: Well, it's not a good look for San Francisco County because the people that really, in my opinion, were knee-jerk and rushed to his defense have all been elected uh, during, his, during his time as the director. So um, I appreciate the fact that they are advocating for him. I, I don't think it's particularly appropriate, but they they did that and that already happened. So um, yes, he has friends in high places. I think his main uh, uh, t- advocacy team is uh, the current vendor, uh, who is uh, a big supporter of his, Uh, And then um, some of the 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 mayor and a supervisor that is very powerful by the name of Aaron Peskin. He also came to the director's defense. And uh, as uh, Aaron is a great political player, uh, he managed to convince the board of supervisors to support the uh, current director. As well. So, so, what's the
3: what's the name of this vendor that we're talking about?
1: That's uh, their their name is Dominion Voting mm-hmm. Systems.
3: Oh, is this the same Dominion that would that figured prominently in um, the big lie about how the the presidential election was uh, was uh, rigged?
1: That's correct. Dominion has been involved. Uh, they they uh, have been involved in presidential politics for many years. Uh, they were also involved in the disputed election of Trump in 2016, um, and at that time, the Democrat, the Democratic Party, raised issues about Dominion. And then in 2020, uh, with Biden's election, the Republicans raised issues regarding Dominion. So they they have uh, taken heat from both sides depending on which election you're addressing. And just to well, clarify,
2: I... just, to, just to go out and publicly say this, we did invite Supervisor Peskin to join us tonight. He is out of the country and won't be back until, according to his email, the January 9th meeting of the Board of Supervisors. But I would like to move on and take a call. We have Carolyn from Inglewood on the phone. Carolyn, you're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Uh,
4: greetings, thank you, and good evening. Um, I think the question I had, you haven't discussed the subject yet.
2: <laughs> That's Which okay. Uh, we, we'll move it up for you.
4: <laughs>
3: We're going to it right now,
4: Carolyn. <laughs> Thank you both. Um, so many people are inquisitive about ranked choice voting. And so um, my question was, would you care to share the positives, if you know that, about ranked choice voting?
1: Yes, and thank you for the question. Um, The uh, rank choice voting, uh, for those that don't know, is an alternative voting method to bullet voting where uh, you would choose one candidate and one candidate only. With rank choice, you're allowed to pick a few different candidates, uh, three or more, um, although it takes on different names as you increase The amount of candidates available to the voter but let's just uh for the sake of ease of conversation say that you get to pick uh more than one uh maybe two or three under that scenario and that's the san francisco scenario the voter experiences they go into the booth and rank their choices Um, this uh, by a statement of the company behind ranked choice voting which is fair vote um, is uh, to enable a voter to um vote their conscience so if let's just say there was a a race where the voter could vote for either obama or ralph nader and um that uh, uh it was uh, those candidates were running against a, a trump or a bush um rather than vote for Um, Obama thinking that a vote for Nader might create a spoiler effect. Um, The voter would actually be encouraged and allowed to vote for Nader as their number one pick and then put Obama number two with uh, feeling assured that if Nader didn't uh, win in the initial round and was disqualified from the rest of the race, that those votes would spill over to Obama, and therefore they have the benefit of both worlds. They can vote their conscience and also take into consideration their uh, druthers that they don't want Trump or Bush elected. They're looking to um, uh, have Nader first uh, with their heart and uh, Obama second with their with their with their brain. Um, they're are positives uh, that have been purported by the creators of the system. And that would be that it allows the voter to vote their conscience and their heart. And that in turn puts uh, people of color, women, in better position uh, towards the voting public. Um, Statistically, there is case study that that has in fact been the case and then there's counter arguments uh uh contesting those statistics uh, i have a personal feeling for it um the downside is that um i think it came in too early regardless of your position on ranked choice voting the fact that it complicates the system and it complicates an already overly complicated system because of the software issues attached. It creates a secondary layer of mud uh, within the system, and it also removes the ability to simply recount the the election. Um, so for those two reasons, and a third reason, which is there are some difficulties within the blind community um, casting their, their vote. Um, for those reasons, um, I'm agnostic regarding ranked choice voting. I have good friends that believe in it, and I appreciate their overall sensibility. But uh, I'm still, the jury is still out for me, mainly because um, I think it, uh, when it's coupled like it currently is with a proprietary software environment, um, it's just too muddy for my taste, and the lack of an ability to do an appropriate recount, uh, that that creates a, an issue that's hard to overcome. But considering we get open source software in the proper place, um, then I think we're ready for the conversation regarding uh, ranked choice voting.
3: Wasn't one of the, uh, recently the Secretary of State, as I understand it, denied um, a, a request from San Francisco to uh, do an open so- source voting project. And one of the reasons was that it couldn't handle ranked choice voting. Uh, is that correct or incorrect?
1: Uh, that is correct on its face, but incorrect in, in its foundation. Okay. Um, we, now we're getting into some disinformation campaigns and such, that are very prevalent in this particular space, as you can imagine, and and as you alluded to, this being the heart of our democracy, there's uh, tremendous uh, power plays in motion here. And uh, one of them uh, in that regard, there was a pilot program that was available to San Francisco by a group Voting Works, who is a nonprofit uh, that are probably in, in the smartest folks at the table on this issue nationally, internationally, these are the folks that are um, currently have uh, open source paper ballot systems deployed in Mississippi and New Hampshire. So they are gaining traction and moving forward, disrupting the current environment. Um, they were available to assist San Francisco, not completely for free, but but veritably for free. And that uh, request to assist them and move forward with this pilot program uh, was denied by the Secretary of State. We um, uh, tag that onto the issue for uh, John Arnst's position coming up for competition because by innuendo and cherry picking the information, we believe he gave information, perhaps disinformation properly coined to the Secretary of State that caused her to retract um, thinking erroneously that the open source community was challenged to provide a system that could handle rank choice or different languages. And in fact, that is not the case. Um, just for your working knowledge, there is nothing uh, that a Dominion or a Sequoia or a, uh, strike that, a Dominion or an ESNS or a Heart Inner Civic, the big three that currently control the overall market of voting systems in the United States. There's nothing they're doing that is tricky or novel that the open source community cannot accomplish. The reason that that um, particular group did not move forward with the uh, finalization of the system is because they could not get a conditional approval from the secretary of state. And, And again, we fall into this disinformation issue where we're, feeling like the director of elections in San Francisco has not been forthright with the elections commission, nor the secretary of state. So we're hopeful that we have clean conversation with the secretary of state that brings her into the light and that we all stipulate the folks at the table that actually know what they're talking about are the pioneers of this open source voting technology. They are uh, light years ahead of the proprietary intellectual intellectual property software community.
2: Before we so, leave ranked g- choice, though, so one thing that does come to mind, hasn't one of the complaints about ranked choice been that a candidate that received a small minority of first choice votes can sometimes rise to the top of the candidate's? to where someone who gets a very small number of votes actually prevails in the election.
1: Yes, that's that's another caveat with the system. Uh, and and so, you know, that is something that people that are not enchanted with rank choice bring up.
3: Well, you know, Brent, you've really piqued my interest here. I, you used the phrase power play, and we talked about power politics in the introduction here. Lay out the power structure for us here. Who would oppose open source voting? I mean, who would who would oppose a technology that enhances our voting rights, that potentially makes voting more convenient and more accessible? And who's on the other side? Who's in favor of it, locally, nationally, uh, statewide? Uh, what what's the power structure here?
1: Well, you've got the big three vendors in place: ESNS, uh, Dominion, and Heart InterCivic. Civic. So those are the status quo preservationists that uh, have contracts and appreciate those contracts. You also have a thought leader in the in- intellectual property community of Microsoft, and their lobbyists have shown up to uh, to to be adversarial to open source legislation moving forward. Um, I've spoken with the uh, hierarchy at Microsoft and they consider it to be a threat to their corporate shareholder interest. Uh, And I think that's just a general um, thought in the intellectual property seller software sales community is that open source is not a good idea as it will eventually diminish market share. Um, Our position in the open source voting community is that, the national security ramifications are obvious and that Microsoft should step down from this particular battle and allow better systems to come forward. Um, We're not saying that they won't be allowed in the space. They could still become service providers or do something else. They just would be disallowed in a perfect world from uh, implementing uh deploying secret software systems into the bloodstream of our democracy because uh well for many reasons one is they're, they're price gouging and they're causing dysfunctionality amongst the territories that can't afford the systems that they're selling and uh number two the systems are insecure to an inappropriate extent no system is perfectly secure But there's uh, fails the sniff test. There's difficulties with the certification process Uh, per the father of the certification process, Roy Saltman, who readily admits that his certification process as it currently stands fails because in his own words, he never assumed the vendors to be so dark hearted in circumventing the current certification system so you've got a poor certification system some price gouging and uh then uh naturally you have a um it, I won't say it rises to the level of antitrust but you certainly have three companies that are controlling the entire marketplace and the uh market is in failure at this point it's not a lucrative marketplace although there there are there is money to be had um the real issue is The open source community that is pushing for these better systems has historically been underfunded, to say the least, and it's in its infancy uh, and it's incubating currently. Luckily, we have managed to move forward in a couple territories, as I mentioned, Mississippi and New Hampshire. So now California won't have the burden of saying we would be the first. And I think California enjoys not being the first. Unfortunately, we prodded them to be the first, but much of this work has been done here in California and in San Francisco. And for the last 15 years, San Francisco has openly advocated for moving forward. And now we see, I think through the lobbyist pressure and the political pressure that in these final moments of moving forward, with the pilot that you mentioned, there was a major block that was obvious to everyone, and and we believe that comes from the the power structure, the the intellectual property lobbyist community.
2: So, Carolyn, I don't know if you're still on the line or if you had any follow up. Otherwise, I hope we answered you. It does sound like you're still with us.
4: <laughs> Greetings, I am still with you. Outstanding. Uh, I will just say though that New York recently did complete uh, their ranked choice voting uh in November and they did use open source so I guess the jury is still out uh but definitely i i definitely would agree that probably the open source piece should take priority and then you might look at ranked choice voting
2: <laughs> well it seems that we have some callers in queue that are going to Perhaps alter the direction that that we present it. Um, well, perhaps not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn, thank you for joining us in your legal rights. You. <laughs> uh, let me turn it to Henry in San Francisco. Welcome to your legal rights.
5: Oh, hi. Thank you. Um, can you hear me?
2: Yes, we hear you fine, and you're on the air. Oh,
5: good. Yeah, great. Uh, I'm from Australia, where we have, we call preferential voting. We don't call it ranked choice. We also have compulsory voting. We've had this for years, for years and years. I've never heard anybody ever complain about it. Everybody that I know of are very much in favour of it. We have a whole slew of different parties that participate uh, in the elections. And uh, quite frankly, I, I I hear all the time in San Francisco where everybody's always complaining, all oh, ranked choice, ranked choice. But on, at the end of the day, if you have a if you have a, a candidate that you want to, that you support, and you go well, you know, just in case you know so and so can't win, then at least I'll have my second choice, and maybe they'll come in. So it gives you more of a chance of getting a second person to to possibly win. Whereas when you have um, current, when you don't have rank choice, then you're sort of stuck with whoever just the one person that you have there. And so I find, like I said, in Australia in particular, we've had this years, many, many years, I think right from the very beginning, um, that we've had both the compulsory voting and the ranked choice voting. So um, um, I would say that from, from that point of view, I think it's a, it's a good thing. Thank you.
2: And when you say compulsory voting, you mean that you are required to vote?
5: Yes. Yes. And there's a penalty, like 10 bucks. <laughs> hey Henry, Henry no thanks thanks for calling.
3: I, I'm a, a a big fan of Australia, and one of the things I love about Australia, they don't take their politics too seriously.
5: Thank you very much, and I, I would, yes, and I totally agree with that. Also, we don't get the extreme that we get over get over here. We we got you know like anywhere else in the world, you get some cases that are a bit on the extreme side. But on the whole, no, I, I think Australia is a very a great country for politically speaking uh, and for living wise and other things, but definitely politically speaking, uh, yeah. it's really Poli- great. Politics
3: and, definitely ranks down the list from football, wouldn't you say?
5: Aussie rules, not the silly game you play over here. Oh,
3: absolutely, Aussie rules. Brisbane Lions are the greatest.
5: Oh, no, no, it's Geelong Cats. I'm sorry.
2: Well, thank you for joining us. It's been it's been a pleasure, Henry. Welcome and thank you for joining us on Your Legal Rights. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW San Francisco. We'll be back right
0: after this. Indeed. Thank you so much. You are listening to 91.7 KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Once again, that's 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. And now we send it back to Jeff Hayden, as well as Brent Turner and Dean Johnson for Your Legal Rights. You are listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW
2: 91.7 FM. San Francisco Bay Area. Tonight, we're talking about voting. Who counts your votes? You make them. How do they get counted? And just who's looking? We're happy to take your call. We would love to make you part of the conversation. Our number is 415-841-4134. 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the Bay Area, call us toll-free. At 866-798-8255, that's 866-798-8255. You can be just like David from San Francisco. David, welcome to your legal rights. You're on the air.
4: Um, Hi there. Yeah, um, I am the um, volunteer coordinator for the uh, California Clean Money Campaign. We are one of the uh, groups in the open source community. And we've gone out on the streets uh, a couple of years ago collecting signatures uh, on petitions for open source, and we find that people are very uh, interested in it, and they're in favor of it, and they like it because it's uh, open, transparent, and more secure than our existing, you know, um, voting, um, vote counting system, which uh, is based on secret secret software owned by
3: Dominion. Well, you know, there's a. Let me just talk about the elephant in the room here. And Brent or David, uh, you can answer this if you want. Just tell us, tell our listeners, what open source is and and why
1: it solves some of the problems of voting.
4: Brent, why don't you go ahead on that?
1: Thank you. Okay, so uh, basically, you, you have uh, two choices currently. The status quo is what we would call a black box, and that is. code that you cannot subpoena, that you cannot look at. If you're the loser of a race and you're curious about what the software was doing, um, you cannot find out. With an open source platform, uh, the entire dynamic is changed from beginning to end. And it's a publicly viewable software. Uh, Let's just say that somebody like uh, Putin or a corrupted... Um, uh, worker bee within Dominion wanted uh, Trump to be elected rather than Hillary. And let's just say somebody put a funny bug in the code that would do its dirty work on the day of the election and then cannibalize itself so that uh, nobody was the wiser. With the uh, current status quo system, there would be a good amount of access to accomplishing that and it would be veritably impossible uh, to be uh, have that bad action discovered with an open source system it would be very difficult to accomplish the bugging and if it did happen there would be many many eyes on the software code process so that that bug could be spotted and then uh, remedied. So with the current system, you have no chance of uh, spotting the bug uh, as a member of the public. You're completely reliant upon the boys in the back at Dominion to, first of all, care enough to do the work, and secondly, to do the work properly. When you bring in a worldwide ability of eyeballs on the code, it opens it up to a lot of very smart people and it changes the dynamic of the process um the air force nasa the department of defense they all utilize open source for mission critical and we believe like congressman eric Slawwell does that voting should be made part of the critical infrastructure for the united states and this is why people like My associate, Jim Woolsey, the former CIA director, is very adamant that Microsoft and the vendors should step down on this issue and allow these folks that know how to upgrade the security of our voting systems, let them do their work. It also has the benefit of allowing administrators to show the loser of an election that they lost. Now, we remember in 2020, the Trump's people, they got involved in the ballot management side. They never even got to the software part of the equation. They are now starting to understand as they look further into the system, as both sides of the aisle look further into the system, there's an awareness occurring, especially with the youth that know about technology and software, that anybody that says that they know what's going on with the current election systems and the results and the software is either very confused or or fibbing because there is no way currently to properly verify the results because there's no access to the software. With an open source system, you do have that access and that ability to verify that the system is working properly and this plays in well for overall voter confidence and to dissipate that bad reaction by the loser where they're squawking about the results. With an open source system, it is quite likely that the loser can be convinced to a higher level, not to a certainty because maybe some people would never accept a loss, but certainly you have a better position to show a loser that the system worked properly and they actually lost. And that may, in fact, avoid future civil unrest, which is something we talked about 20 years ago before there was a Trump or the storming of the Capitol, that we predicted that this, uh, these proprietary software systems could result in civil unrest It happened regarding the ballot management aspect. Our concern is now that that part has already happened, um, both sides are getting more aware of the software issue. And so the time is now to migrate upward toward a more secure, transparent system.
3: Well, you know, Brent and David, if you're still there, I'm a little skeptical, but Jeff, I think we have another caller,
2: right? That we do. This is Doris in Berkeley. Doris, you're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Thank
6: you very much. It's it's an honor, really. Um, I have a couple of points of information and a couple of questions. My point of information is primarily the underlying motivation for even beginning to institute ranked-choice voting was to save money. And the money would, have, would be saved, theoretically, by having just one election and not having a runoff. In other words, if the person... If there are two people in the, in the lead, one person gets more than the other, and the rest are behind, by definition, that person with the most votes should be the winner. But now everything's shifted, and the only winner of a ranked choice campaign is the one who gets 50 percent plus more of the votes. And, of course, those votes are accumulated as the ranking and the adding uh, of other votes to that person's uh, tally grows to the point where they get 50 percent plus one. In Berkeley, we had a city council election. The person who won the plurality of the votes, which would legally have made him the victor, didn't have 50% plus one. And then in the ranking process, he ended up losing that seat, which I think is terribly regrettable. The other point I want to make is open source protocols, even in themselves, prove how much more complicated and costly all this so-called money-saving idea has become. And my question as well, my final question, what is the possible recourse if, if anyone were to research, you know, the ranked-choice vo- voting? Is there a way that that county could have a recourse of saying, we changed our mind, we're not going to follow the ranked-choice voting protocols any further? And, and, you know, needless to say, when you vote, you want to minimize the confusion for the voters. That is a major goal. And I worked as a poll worker for probably 50 years if I add it all up, all my adult life. And I know that how serious people take the voting and how, how, what can I say, confident many times they are, but on the other hand, they're not so confident sometimes and the ranked choice system does confuse many people. So those goals need to be considered and, and respected and hopefully the whole open source protocol, I will call it nonsense, would be a money saver if we would just go back to the regular, the winner gets the most votes, that's the winner.
2: It seems to me, and I'm... I'm- looking at some of the questions you posed to us. So stay on the line with us. But I've noticed a couple of things. One is on the rank choice. If the real issue was simply saving money, couldn't they simply say the person who gets the most votes wins and we're not going to do a runoff? We're not going to require a majority, whoever wins the amount, and save that same money.
1: Yes. Jeff, I'd I'd like to uh, uh, add something here. Um, And I I think that Collar is uh, well served with her position and understanding that the instant runoff of the instant runoff part of ranked choice voting. Um, The the runoff uh, piece deserves uh, inspection itself. And I think history shows that runoffs in themselves are a bit dubious in nature because um sending everybody home and then bringing them back um uh, that may have some um status quo preservation issues attached as well and i think it served incumbents uh historically and and there may be some some uh equity racial issues there as well. I think we would be underserving the conversation if we did not mention because Jim Crow was mentioned earlier and I heard Dean just reference that he is skeptical and I wanna make sure we're we're, uh, sensitive to his skepticism because I think with enough conversation, his skepticism will be alleviated. But I think we have to state clearly that the public has a reasonable expectation that the government will provide safe and secure election systems in the name of free and fair elections. So this is fundamental Mm -hmm. to our democracy. And we have to admit, in the context of Jim Crow, that status quo preservationism is steeped in racism and also uh, gender equality issues. I think the status quo is uh, smitten with uh, white males And so if these folks that are uh, having conversation with us tonight from the public, uh, I I think we we need to stipulate that talking about the powers that be, um, these are not uh, black women that are uh, entrenched in status quo preservationism. Um, The people that are defending the Microsoft position and don't want open source, this has got some heavy baggage attached historically in our country. What I think the people want is a fairness, uh, and that fairness now uh, depends on this technology. As long as we have proprietary software in these systems, we anybody again that tells you that they can verify the results, um, we 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 can get a kind of a good read on it but not as good of a read on it and not the level of security that is available if we move forward with the better technology. So I, I just want to add that I would be remiss if we didn't mention that this has some Jim Crow overtones to it. The fight for open source is the is the next chapter in, in Jim Crow.
2: Or moving from Jim Crow, as the case may be.
1: Moving from Jim Crow, correct.
2: Doris, thank you for joining us. I hope we answered your questions for you. Let me turn it to Trent in Los Angeles. Welcome to your legal rights.
7: Hi, uh, thank you very much for for having me. I'm uh, Trent Lang, president of the California Clean Money Campaign. We're uh, one of the groups that's working in coalition uh, uh, to try to bring open source paper ballot voting systems to California. We work with Brent and lots of other groups. Uh, Really, thanks for doing this important show. uh, we, and I personally as a PhD in computer science, think it's really important for the security and transparency of our elections to move to open source. Uh, you don't have to think any cheating has been going on with elections to understand that everybody could have more trust in voting systems if the software that counts the vote was transparent and open to the public for inspection, as opposed to being secret as it is right right now. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's why it's so exciting that uh, states like New Hampshire and even Mississippi have been successfully testing the new open, sor- open source voting systems by the uh, nonprofit Voting Works. Um, and uh, it's also exciting that Secretary of State uh, Shirley Weber is working now on regulations to allow counties like San Francisco to run an open source pilot program. Uh, we hope that she'll approve them soon and, and that she'll make them easy enough that uh, counties like San Francisco can run them to prove the, prove the systems. So it's a step in the right direction, and we're making progress, but we got a little ways to go. I think those are points that are very valid. One
2: of the things, whenever we talk on the air about open source voting, I always hearken back to the movie Man of the Year, where we got these really strange election results because of a software glitch. And it seems that under these current proprietary systems, there's not the level of oversight. If something goes wrong somewhere, we just
7: live with it and move forward. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the thing. When you, when you have secret software, you, you can't tell. I mean, first of all, they, they, they can be uh, at risk of, of being hacked by outside groups and even outside uh, countries, as we've seen uh, uh, threats threats of. Um, If you actually can have outside experts look at the software, um, you know, you can verify that that kind of stuff isn't going on. So I think Brent mentioned this earlier. um, uh, Maybe, you know, in... After uh, Trump beat uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016, a lot of Democrats were up in arms and going, wait a second, there's something funny going on here. And then, of course, Republicans have been saying the same things after, uh, some Republicans uh, have been saying the same thing after uh, Trump lost. What's going on here? Is the Dominion system the problem? Well, nobody can know, right? Uh, For sure. It's not to say that there actually are those problems, but because the... Uh, software is secret. You can't prove it one way or the other. If the, if the software was open source and public, everybody would be able to see. Okay, yeah, no problems. There's no problems here with this code. And that's yeah, why and it,
3: this it, to Trent and Brent. I, here's the source of my skepticism. Um, when when I read about open source, you know, I wonder if we're not solving a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, We we all know that after the 2020 election, Trump and his followers filed some 60 lawsuits uh, alleging election fraud. There was zero evidence introduced of any sort of election fraud. Um, So maybe there's not a problem and maybe if it ain't broke, we shouldn't fix it. On the other hand, um, maybe open source is creating a problem because, as you say, there are bad actors out there who are looking potentially to hack our voting system. And if we have open everything run by an open source software where the code is available to anybody and everybody, isn't that an invitation to hacking? Um, I'll
7: say uh, hackers do not need to see the source code to hack into machines. Anybody mm-hmm. that's owned a Microsoft, a Windows machine, it's it's completely secret software, and it is one of the the most hacked. <laughs> you know, you so many yeah. bugs and viruses, et cetera. They they don't need to see the source code to figure it 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 out. Um, and in general, open source voting systems, uh, I mean, open source programming in general is more secure because there are more places uh, to to for people to figure out where the bugs are and say, and shut them off. I mean that's why, as a computer scientist, in general, computer scientists in general will say, open-source software is more secure because the bad actors will find a way whether or not they have the have the software. But you need uh, good actors to be able to look at the code and say, oh, wait a second, you didn't do the upgrade that, uh, uh, from the software that was necessary two years ago. You better fix that before it's too late. Or, oh, look, here's a way that, that people can attack from the outside. That's the advantage of open source. That's why uh, uh, you know uh, DARPA and, and and many other groups use open source for security. And that's to the point about um, you know the, all the lawsuits about the uh, elections, yeah, sure. Most of those lawsuits uh, those lawsuits that were done in the last election were were bogus lawsuits. But but when the software secret, nobody can know for sure that there wasn't some funny business. It's it's or, or that there wasn't a, a hack from somewhere, but when the software is publicly available, then then you know you know there wasn't any hidden hidden trapdoor. You know there wasn't any hidden hidden uh, security flaw that let people uh, open it up. That's that's one of the benefits from that. And the last thing I'll say is it's also in general open source is much less expensive, and and if if we can save our counties a lot of money to uh then use even more uh, of focus more of the resources on actual security in the election systems that will also help too.
3: yeah well you know we've we've had a similar discussion with respect to cryptocurrency on the show and some of our crypto experts have said you know it's decentralization that prevents hacking the fact that there are multiple different systems um, and no centralized, single source for crypto um, makes it difficult for crypto to be hacked it's the centralized exchanges that often get hacked and i'm wondering if it's not if it's not the very chaos of our current electoral system that is preventing hacking and maybe if we have a single software that's open to everybody that doesn't that just make hacking that much easier Um, I
7: would say, I mean, that's great. That's a, a, a great, great question. And, and people certainly have said, because we, you do have different systems and different ways that people vote in, in almost every, in many different counties. But open source doesn't mean there only has, to, first of all, open source doesn't mean there only has to be one system, right? You can have multiple different kinds of open source uh, systems. And certainly different counties will end up with different ones, right? San Francisco will need a version okay. that handles ranked choice voting. Uh, so so you can have that same Distribution, just just making sure that 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 there's transparency in how the votes are counted, that we don't have right now. It's not necessarily a problem, but I think a lot of people would be a lot more confident, and certainly computer scientists would be a lot more confident if if there was more transparency in the code that actually did the counting. And dean,
1: dean, to 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 also attempt to answer your question we we certainly don't want to climb into bed with the crypto community in this moment um de- being uh centralized or decentralized is almost a red herring here um as trent mentioned uh there is not an effort within the open source community to centralize anything as a matter of fact um, your instinct is correct decentralization is appropriate and one of the benefits of having a, a patchwork quilt like we do now with the proprietary uh, systems is that um, hacking one would not allow you to hack all. And that that would stay true in the open source community. So centralization is not uh, is a separate subject. And and uh, I think uh, your thoughts are in keeping with the open source community. There is not a movement to centralize anything. Now, that being said, the uh, prototypes, the Deckert design talked about uh, precinct counting as optimal for uh, uh, open source voting systems. We don't know if we're gonna be able to obtain that goal because there is a general predisposition towards central tabulation uh, in the counties. Uh, But if even with central tabulation, you still have to prefer an open source system because of the transparency and all the other security benefits, cost analysis, so forth. So um, I think you'll find upon doing the deep dive that some of the information that you may be hearing is in fact disinformation, which gets us back to the power play aspect Where does this disinformation come from? There is, I think you're familiar with the term FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And and that is part of a disinformation campaign. Now, whether that campaign comes from people outside the country that would wish to do the United States harm or is coming from simply vendors that want to retain contracts, I don't think we'll, we'll know for sure. But what we do know is that the smartest minds regarding technology almost all agree that the open source environment is preferable. And that, again, is per the Department of Defense, the Air Force and NASA. So if anybody really wants to talk shop, we we refer them to those particular departments.
3: Yeah, well, you know, I'm sort of an uh, agnostic when it comes to crypto, but I'm wondering, given what you said, if maybe the blockchain technology along with open source might be the solution here.
1: You know, there's some smart people that have, that have uh, stated that, some very smart people. There's also some very smart people that do not think that that is correct for the simple reason that we want to keep simplicity as part of the public package. And the moment that you lose the public the public's ability to really follow along in the conversation, you're you're doing a disservice to the effort. So for that reason, some very smart people uh, object to the blockchain aspect, becoming involved, but I'll leave that to real smart people. Um, I'm not one of them. I'm a trained parrot that knows to say, if you want to upgrade the voting systems, make sure you're using general public license, open source, and a good paper ballot. And then the third piece is a robust audit, and you're having a robust audit, hopefully 100% audit, and so you're, you're counting, you're getting your first count with a very clean software, and then you're checking that against the paper ballot, now you're on the road to success. Currently, what we have is an inability to get the first count with precision or clarity and an inability, as Jeff mentioned, that uh, toward proper oversight so that the people that are saying they know what's going on have a vested interest. And the fact is they're either confused or they're lying. Yeah, I know
3: West Virginia and Colorado have tried blockchain voting with some success. But, you know, I remain skeptical that we might even be increasing the digital divide by doing so.
1: Yeah, the public doesn't understand it.
2: You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. Tonight, we've been discussing an overview of your right to vote and what happens to your vote after it's been cast. Who's counting it and how? And how do we know they're counting them right? Our guest tonight has been Brent Turner, the real activist. Tonight's show was produced by Dean Johnson and yours truly. Please be sure to join us next year, or uh, join us next week on your legal rights, where, as always, we will take your calls and answer your questions. And with that, a big thanks to tonight's guest, Brent Turner, the real activist. Brent, thank you for joining us yet again. And on behalf of your legal rights, a big thanks to all of you for listening, to my co-host, NBC Legal and Political Analyst, Dean Johnson, and at the controls, Tarek Ansari. I'm Jeff Hayden. Good night, be safe, and to everybody, Happy New Year.
0: Our thanks to Dean Johnson, Brent Turner, and Jeff Hayden of Your Legal Rights, another great show. You can hear Your Legal Rights every single Wednesday at 6 p.m. until 7 right here on KALW. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's lawyer Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Once again, that's 415-989-1616 or sfbar.org for more information. You are listening to KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Cue from the CBC starts in just 30 seconds. Following that, it'll be One Way Possible, an excellent Bay Area DJ who has some excellent music ready for you, and then from 10 until midnight... DJ Lady Ryan keeps on spinning with some excellent tunes and some dance floor treats. So stick around. Stay tuned. You are listening to.
3: This is Janae Darden, Oakland author and host of Sights and Sounds. And you're listening to KALW San Francisco Bay Area.
0: The time is now 7.